I would like to dedicate this sermon to my mentor at Harvard Divinity School, Bishop Christer Stendhal. Prophets are notoriously difficult people. They are not saints. They are people of agony. As Rabbi Abraham Heschel writes, whose life and soul are at stake. The prophet is moved by human anguish. Prophets are not soothsayers. They do not divine the future. Injustice for the prophet assumes almost cosmic proportions. A prophet consumed by an unnatural fury gives witness to the divine pathos. God, Heschel writes, is raging in the prophet's words. He or she stands unflinchingly with the crucified of the earth, even to the point of their own destruction. While the world is at ease and asleep, Heschel writes, the prophet feels the blast from heaven. The prophet says no to his or her society, condemning its habits and assumptions, its complacency, waywardness, and syncretism. And the prophet is often compelled to proclaim the very opposite of what his or her heart desires. Prophets believe in justice when the world around them says there will be no justice. It is not that they transcend reality. It is that they are compelled to strike out against it, refusing to be silent no matter how hard life becomes. They are gripped by what Reinhold Niebuhr calls a sublime madness in the soul. For nothing but such madness will do battle with malignant power and spiritual wickedness in high places. This madness is dangerous but vital because without it, truth is obscured. Liberalism, Niebuhr goes on, lacks the spirit of enthusiasm, not to say fanaticism, which is so necessary to move the world out of its beaten, beaten tracks. It is too intellectual and too little emotional to be an efficient force in history. But as the priest Amaziah says of the prophet Amos, the land is not able to bear all his words. The biblical prophets, Elijah, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, believe that anything worth living for was worth dying for. Their enemy was not only suffering 
calumny, poverty, injustice, but a life devoid of meaning. You have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live, the civil rights icon Fred Shuttlesworth said. Prophets cannot be intimidated. They cannot be bought. They are single-mindedly obsessed. James Baldwin, himself a prophet, understands. He writes, Ultimately, the artist and the revolutionary function as they function and pay whatever dues they must pay behind it because they are possessed by a vision and they do not so much follow this vision as find themselves driven by it. Otherwise, they could never endure, much less embrace the lives they are compelled to lead. The powerful and the rich make war on the prophet. They slander and insult the prophet. They question the prophet's sanity and motives. They make it hard for the prophet to survive, removing the prophet's meager source of income. They punish and marginalize those who stand with the prophet. They silence the prophet's voice through censorship, imprisonment, and often murder. The list of martyred prophets is long. Socrates, Joan of Arc, Isaac Babel, Federico Garcia Lorca, Miklos Radnoti, Irene Nemirovsky, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Victor Hara, Ken Sarawiwa. The truth grips the prophet so that he or she is bound so strongly to it that nothing but death can separate them from it. And in that truth, they find God. One can never wrestle enough with God if one does not do so out of a pure, pure regard for truth, Simon Vey writes. Christ likes us to prefer truth to him because before being Christ, he is truth. If one turns aside from him to go toward truth, one will not go far before falling into his arms. Who crucified Jesus? Organized religion, organized politics, organized business. The executioners have not changed. They simply changed the story created a counterfeit gospel. As the poet Langston Hughes writes, Listen, Christ, you did all right in your day, I reckon, but that day's gone now. They ghosted you up a swell story, too. Call it Bible. But it's dead now. 
The popes and the preachers made too much money from it. They sold you to many kings, generals, robbers, and killers, even to the czar and Cossacks, even to Rockefeller's church, even to the Saturday evening post. You ain't no good no more. They've pawned you till you've done wore out. The Carthaginian general Hannibal, who came close to defeating the Roman Republic in the Second Punic War, committed suicide in 181 BC in exile. As Roman soldiers closed in on his residence and Bithania, now modern-day Turkey. It had been more than 30 years since he led his army across the Alps and annihilated Roman legions. Rome was only able to save itself from defeat by replicating Hannibal's military tactics. Did not matter that there had been over 20 Roman consuls since Hannibal's invasion. It did not matter that Hannibal had been hunted for decades and forced to perpetually flee, always just beyond the reach of Roman authorities. He had humiliated Rome. He had punctured its myth of omnipotence, and he would pay with his life. Years after Hannibal was gone, the Romans were still not satisfied. They finished their work of apocalyptic vengeance in 146 BC by raising Carthage to the ground and selling its remaining population into slavery. Cato the censor summed up the sentiments of empire. Cartago de linea est, Carthage must be destroyed. Nothing about empire from then until now has changed. Imperial powers do not forgive those who make public the sordid and immoral inner workings of empire. Empires are fragile constructions. Their power is as much one of perception as of military strength. The virtues they claim to uphold and defend, usually in the name of their superior civilization, are a mask for pillage, corruption, lies, the exploitation of cheap labor, indiscriminate violence against innocence, and state terror. The current American empire, damaged and humiliated by the troves of internal documents published by WikiLeaks, will, for this reason, persecute Julian for the rest of his life. It does not matter who is president or which political party is in power, imperialists speak with one despotic voice. And Julian, for this reason, is undergoing a slow motion execution. Seven years trapped in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, four years in Belmarsh prison. He ripped back the veil on the dark machinations of the U.S. empire, the wholesale slaughter of civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan, the lies, the corruption, the brutal suppression of those who attempt to speak the truth. And the empire intends to make him pay. He is to be an example to anyone who might think of doing 
but he did. Julian had other options. His genius and his skill as a computer programmer and cryptographer would have seen him highly compensated by security agencies, private contractors in Silicon Valley. He could have made a very comfortable living if he served the empire. His soul, as Christopher Marlowe shows in Faust, would have atrophied and died like the souls of all who prostitute themselves to power. But the material rewards would have been significant. He would have been a success, at least a success as measured by the powerful and the wealthy. Satan tempts Jesus by offering him power, all the kingdoms of the world, accompanied by glory and authority. If you then will worship me, Satan says, it will all be yours. This temptation is the fatal disease of those who serve power and with it the hubris and avarice that hastens, as the prophet Amos says, the reign of violence. And yet, these malevolent forces are not the most dangerous. When I was a rabbi of the Jewish community in Berlin under the Hitler regime, the most important lesson I learned under those tragic circumstances was that bigotry and hatred are not the most urgent problems. Rabbi Joachim Prince said, the most urgent and most disgraceful, the most shameful, the most tragic problem is silence. Julian's crucifixion is a public spectacle. It is not hidden. And yet, we watch passively. We do not flood the streets with our protests. We do not condemn the executioners, including Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We give his crucifixion, our silent consent. W.H. Auden in Musée des Beaux-Arts writes, about suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along, how when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who do not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course Anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him, it was not 
an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. Sacrifice, self-sacrifice, is the cost of discipleship, but few are willing to pay that price. We prefer to look away from suffering, a boy falling out of the sky. And it is our indifference, and with our indifference, our complicity that condemns all prophets. But what price of peace? The radical priest, Father Daniel Berrigan, who spent two years in a federal prison for burning draft records during the Vietnam War, asks. I think of all the good, decent, peace-loving people I have known by the thousands, and I wonder. How many of them are so afflicted with the wasting disease of normalcy that even as they declare for peace, their hands reach out with an instinctive spasm in the direction of their comforts, their home, their security, their income, their future, their plans. That five-year plan of studies, that 10-year plan of professional status, that 20-year plan of family growth and unity, that 50-year plan of decent life and honorable, natural demise. Of course, let us have peace, we cry. But at the same time, let us have normalcy. Let us lose nothing. Let our lives stand intact. Let us know neither prison nor ill repute, nor disruption of ties. And because we must encompass this and protect that, and because at all costs, at all costs, our hopes must march on schedule. And because it is unheard of that in the name of peace, a sword should fall, disjoining that fine and cunning web that our lives have woven. Because it is unheard of that good men should suffer injustice, or families be sundered, or good repute be lost, because of this, we cry peace and cry peace. And there is no peace. There is no peace because there are no peacemakers. There are no makers of peace because the making of peace is at least as costly as the making of war, at least as exigent at least as disruptive, at least as liable to bring disgrace and prison and death in its wake. Bearing the cross, living in truth, is not about the pursuit of happiness. It does not embrace the illusion of inevitable human progress. It is not about achieving wealth, celebrity, or power. It entails sacrifice. 
It is about our neighbor. The organs of state security monitor and harass you. They amass huge files on your activities. They disrupt your life. They throw you in prison, even when, like Julian, you did not commit a crime. It is not a new story, nor is our indifference to evil, palpable evil we can see in front of us, new. In the reading from the Hebrew Bible, we hear the story of the prophet Jeremiah. He, like Julian, exposed the corruption and lust for war by the powerful. He warned of the catastrophe that inevitably comes when the covenant with God is broken. He condemned idolatry, the corruption of kings, priests, and false prophets. Jeremiah was arrested, beaten, and put in stocks. He was forbidden from preaching. An attempt was made on his life. After Egypt conquered Babylon and Judea began to prepare for war, Jeremiah delivered an oracle warning the king to maintain peace. King Zedekiah ignored him. Babylon besieged Jerusalem. Jeremiah was arrested and imprisoned. He was freed by the Babylonians after Jerusalem's conquest, but was exiled to Egypt where, according to the biblical tradition, he was stoned to death. Jeremiah, like Julian, understood that a society that prohibits the capacity to speak in truth extinguishes the capacity to live in justice. Yes, all of us who know and admire Julian decry his prolonged suffering and the suffering of his family. Yes, we demand that the many wrongs and injustices that have been visited upon him be ended. Yes, we honor him for his courage and his integrity, but the battle for Julian's liberty has always been much more than the persecution of a publisher. It is the most important battle for press freedom, for truth, of our era. And if we lose this battle, it will be devastating not only for Julian and his family, but for us. Tyrannies from biblical times to the present invert the rule of law. They turn the law into an instrument of injustice. They cloak their crimes in a faux legality. They use the decorum of the courts and trials to mask their criminality. Those such as Julian who expose that criminality to the public are dangerous, for without the pretext of legitimacy, the tyranny loses credibility and has nothing left in its arsenal but fear, coercion, and violence. The long campaign against Julian and WikiLeaks is a window into the collapse of the rule of law, the rise of what the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin calls our system of inverted totalitarianism, a form of totalitarianism that maintains the fictions of the old capitalist democracy, including its institutions, iconography, patriotic symbols, and rhetoric, but internally has surrendered total control to the dictates of global corporations. I was in the London courtroom during Julian's extradition hearing, overseen by Judge Vanessa Baretzer, 
an updated version of the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland demanding the sentence before pronouncing the verdict. It was judicial farce. There was no legal basis to hold Julian in prison. There was no legal basis to try him, an Australian citizen, under the U.S. Espionage Act. The CIA spied on Julian and the embassy through a Spanish company, UC Global, contracted to provide embassy security. This spying included recording the privileged conversations between Julian and his lawyers as they discussed his defense. This fact alone invalidated the hearing. Julian is being held in a high security prison so the state can, as Niels Melzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, has testified, continue the degrading abuse and torture it hopes will lead to his psychological, if not physical, disintegration. The US government directed the London barrister James Lewis. Lewis presented these directives to Baritzer. Baritzer adopted them as her legal decision. It was judicial pantomime. Lewis and the judge insisted they were not attempting to criminalize journalists and muzzle the press while they busily set up the legal framework to criminalize journalists and muzzle the press. And that is why the court worked so hard to mask the proceedings from the public, limiting access to the courtroom to a handful of observers and making it hard and at times impossible to access the hearing online. It was a tawdry show trial, not an example of the best of English jurisprudence but the Lubyanka. Prophets call for justice in an unjust world. What they demand is not radical. On the political spectrum, it is conservative. The restoration of the rule of law. It is simple and basic. It should not, in a functioning democracy, be incendiary. But living in truth, in a despotic system is the supreme act of defiance, and this truth terrifies those in power. The architects of imperialism, the masters of war, the corporate-controlled legislative, judicial, and executive branches of government, and their obsequious courtiers in the media are illegitimate. Say this simple truth, and you are banished, as many of us have been, to the margins of the media landscape prove this truth, as Julian, Chelsea Manning, Jeremy Hammond, and Edward Snowden have, by allowing us to peer into the inner workings of power, and you are hunted down and persecuted. In October 2010, WikiLeaks released the Iraq war logs. The war logs document numerous US war crimes, including video images of the gunning down of two Reuters journalists, and 10 other unarmed civilians in the collateral murder video. The routine torture of Iraqi prisoners, the covering up of thousands of civilian deaths, and the killing of nearly 700 civilians who had approached too closely to US checkpoints. The towering civil rights attorney, attorneys Len Weinglass and my good friend Michael Ratner, who I would later accompany to meet Julian in the Ecuadorian embassy, met with Julian in a studio apartment in central London. Julian's personal bank cards had been blocked. 
three encrypted laptops with documents detailing U.S. war crimes that disappeared from his luggage en route to London. Swedish police were fabricating a case against him in a move Ratner warned was about extraditing Julian to the United States. WikiLeaks and you personally are facing a battle that is both legal and political, Weinglass told Julian. As we learned in the Pentagon Papers case, the U.S. government doesn't like the truth coming out. And it doesn't like to be humiliated. No matter if it's Nixon or Bush or Obama, Republican or Democrat in the White House. The U.S. government will try to stop you from publishing its ugly secrets. And if they have to destroy you and the First Amendment and the rights of publishers with you, they are willing to do it. We believe they are going to come after WikiLeaks and you, Julian, as the publisher. Come after me? For what? asked Julian. Espionage, Wineglass continued. They're going to charge Bradley Manning with treason under the Espionage Act of 1917. We don't think it applies to him because he's a whistleblower, not a spy. And we don't think it applies to you either because you are a publisher. But they are going to try to force Manning into implicating you as his collaborator. Come after me for what? That is the question. They came after Julian not for his vices, but his virtues. They came after Julian because he exposed the more than 15,000 unreported deaths of Iraqi civilians, because he exposed the torture and abuse of some, hundred, some 800 men and boys aged between 14 and 89 at Guantanamo, because he exposed that Hillary Clinton in 2009 ordered U.S. diplomats to spy on the U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and other U.N. representatives from China, France, Russia, and the U.K., spying that included obtaining DNA, iris scans, fingerprints, and personal passwords, part of a long pattern of illegal surveillance that included the eavesdropping on U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan in the weeks before the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. Because he exposed that Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and the CIA backed the June 2009 military coup in Honduras, that overthrew the democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya, replacing him with a murderous and corrupt military regime. Because he exposed that George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and General David Petraeus prosecuted a war in Iraq that under post-Nuremberg laws is defined as a criminal war of aggression, a war crime, that they authorized hundreds of targeted assassinations, including those of U.S. citizens in Yemen, and that they secretly launched missile, bomb, and drone attacks on Yemen, killing scores of civilians. Because Julian exposed the contents of speeches Hillary Clinton gave to Goldman Sachs for which she was paid $675,000, a sum so large it can only be considered a bribe. And that she privately assured corporate leaders she would do their bidding, 
while promising the public financial regulation and reform. Because he exposed how the hacking tools used by the CIA and the National Security Agency permits the wholesale government surveillance of our televisions, computers, smartphones, and antivirus software, allowing the government to record and store our conversations, images, and private text messages, even from encrypted apps. Julian exposed the truth. He exposed it over and over and over, until there was no question of the endemic illegality, corruption, and mendacity that defines the global ruling class. And for these truths, they came after Julian, as they have come after all who dared rip back the veil on power. Red Rosa now has vanished too, Bertolt Brecht wrote, after the German socialist Rosa Luxemburg was murdered. She told the poor what life is about, and so the rich have rubbed her out. We have undergone a corporate coup d'etat where the poor and working men and women are reduced to joblessness and hunger, where war, financial speculation, and internal surveillance are the only real business of the state, where even habeas corpus no longer exists, where we as citizens are nothing more than commodities to corporate systems of power, ones to be used, fleeced, and discarded. To refuse to fight back, to reach out, and help the weak, the oppressed, and the suffering. To save the planet from ecocide. To decry the domestic and international crimes of the ruling class. To demand justice. To live in truth is to bear the mark of Cain. Those in power must feel our wrath. And this means constant acts of mass civil disobedience. It means constant acts of social and political disruption. For this organized power from below is the only power that will save us and the only power that will free Julian. Politics is a game of fear. It is our moral and civic duty to make those in power very, very afraid. The criminal ruling class has all of us locked in its death grip. It cannot be reformed. It has abolished the rule of law. It obscures and falsifies the truth. It seeks the consolidation of its obscene wealth and power. But to do this, we must, as Julian has done, as all prophets have done, pick up the cross and bear its awful weight on our back. This is the cross that we must bear for the freedom of our people, Martin Luther King reminds us. The cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up the cross. With all its difficulties, agonizing, and tension-packed content, and carry it until that very cross leaves its marks upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way which comes only through suffering. When I took up the cross, I recognized its meaning the cross is something you bear and ultimately that you die on. Hope has two beautiful daughters, Augustine writes. 
Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way they are. Those who hold fast to the eternal and the sacred, to truth. As the sociologist Emile Durkheim understood, are not merely those who seek new truths, of which most others are ignorant, but are men and women possessed by sublime madness, who are driven by a transcendent force that allows them to endure the trials of existence or conquer them. And they transform the world through suffering. My friend Julian is suffering. He is suffering for our sins and our indifference. As Rabbi Heschel reminds us, some are guilty, but all are responsible. There are two choices. We stand for the truth for Julian and free him. We find the courage to be responsible, to pick up the cross, or we are complicit in the dark night of corporate tyranny that will envelop us all. Let us pray. God of grace and God of glory, in thy people pour thy power. Crown thine ancient church's story Bring her bud to glorious flower. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the facing of this hour. For the facing of this hour. Amen.